to another episode of The Rebel Diary by Lost in Samsara. Today we are here with Sarah Corbett. We met Sarah a few years ago during a panel discussion we were all on about ethical fashion and we were just blown away by her approach to activism. We learned how she has helped change laws, company policies and people's hearts and minds over the years through her unique approach to activism she calls gentle protest, using crafts as a tool for activism. As introverts ourselves, Sarah's book, How to Be a Craftivist, The Art of Gentle Protest, really resonated with us. And you can find it now in paperback in all good bookshops. What we love the most about the Craftivist Collective is that all their campaigns want to provoke thoughts and conversations with politicians and power holders rather than arguments. They want to engage, empower and encourage people on and offline to become part of change in the face of injustice, inequality and prejudice. Sarah, after starting your career as a professional campaigner for NGOs including Christian Aid, Oxfam and the UK Government Department for International Development, you went ahead and created your own collective of craftivists in 2008. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, Craftivist Collective and what inspired you to start it? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. And it's so nice to see you after <laughs> however many years it was. Too many. Show. I don't remember anymore. <laughs> so many. I think it was a fashion revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, no planet B something uh, event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's gone so fast. Um, so I set up the Craftivist Collective in January 2009 because I started doing craftivism in August 2008 and I never planned to set up a collective, I never planned to set up a social enterprise or to be, you know, 10 years later be talking to you guys and <laughs> stuff that I do. So it was, it was very organic. I started doing craftivism in 2008 because... I was traveling a lot with my job at the time um, on lots of trains and I get quite travel sick. <laughs> so I, couldn't, I knew I couldn't do all my emails and reports and all the reading on the train. And I loved using my hands. I used to like to paint and draw, but that was a bit difficult on trains. So I picked up a craft kit in the August of 2008 because I just was feeling burnt out in my job. And also I joined lots of activist groups because I've always been an activist and I was doubting some of the effectiveness of some of them. I was doubting some of the motives seemed more about ego than about service. Um, and a lot of it I felt was actually more harmful than helpful in terms of polarizing you with power holders rather than having these genuine conversations and wanting to all be part of the solution. So I picked up a cross-stitch kit on a train to Glasgow um to do very small and just thought I've never crafted properly before but it's something that's accessible and I YouTubed some videos how to cross stitch and immediately noticed that it slowed me down calmed me down helped me think more clearly and critically about my doubts of whether I could be an effective activist or whether I was going to burn out because I am an introvert or whether there were other not so loud or divisive ways to do activism, all these big questions that because I was using the comfort of crafting, I wasn't um, stopping my brain from looking at those uncomfortable questions because I had the comfort of craft in my hand. So then after the train journey, I Googled craft and activism thinking, I think there's something in this with using the process to think more critically and thoughtfully and empathetically 
the couple opposite me were asking me what I was doing and the activist in me went from thinking oh you know I wish I wasn't just cross-stitching a teddy I wish it was a quote from Gandhi about inequality <laughs> talk about so there were different elements that I thought this this could be really helpful for activism but I wasn't sure how and I googled craft and activism the word existed it was coined in 2003 by an American lady called Betsy Greer who's a knitter who said that all the knitting groups she was part of often she saw as politicals because they'd be talking about personal stuff, which is political, but also they'd be darning socks or talking about capitalism or make do and mend. Um, so I found this word, but there wasn't any groups I could join or projects I could do. Um, and my background is activism from a very early age. I grew up in a low income area. My mum was a nurse and is now deputy mayor of Liverpool. So she's a politician. My dad has always been the local vicar where we've always campaigned on local, national and international issues. So activism is my passion. And I saw how craft could help it more strategically in activism. So not just general conversations, but really how, like you said in your introduction, you know, how it can be used to engage power holders. So I had a bit of a gut feeling, but I, you know, I feel like you'll resonate with this. I didn't want to ask other people to join in. I just wanted to tinker on my own, <laughs> which is quite, you know, a normal thing for introverts and for shy people. But then my colleagues and friends and family started hearing that I was like putting up little street art bits and I was doing craft and which wasn't really, they didn't see that I loved craft. Like it was never a love of mine, but um, people were asking me what I was doing. So I set up a blog called A Lonely Craftivist, thinking that that was a, gr a great way for my colleagues, family and friends that could keep up to date with this experiment I was playing with. Um, without me having to tell them all the time. And I forgot that the internet means anyone can find it. So literally within the, you know, within the setting up in August, by the January 2009, I had people all over the world asking to join in, in my projects. Some people who love craft saying, can I use my craft for good and copy your projects? Some people who were burnt out activists, some introverts, a real mix of people. So I, and then some people in London where I'm based. So I met this group of strangers and friends. I think there was about 10 of us in the British Library in January 2009, where we came up with the name, the Craftivist Collective. And we discussed what it, what it was. Do I set up projects for people? And since then, which is, you know, over a decade ago, it's changed into a social enterprise, not for profit. I make kits, ethical kits for people to use all over the world on their own or in groups. Some craftivist groups set themselves up with autonomy and they t take on some of my projects or use our books and tools and kits to create their own projects. The Craftivist Collective, I also do events with big museums and galleries around the world to bring social change to their audiences, but in a gentle way um and i work a lot with charities doing collaborations on particular projects so it's a real mix but it's still it's always me looking at where is there a gap in the activism toolkit where can craft be of use 
but also over the years I've seen that the, the golden thread in craftivism of what I think, because there's lots of different forms of craftivism out there, what I think is most powerful is what I call gentle protest. So it is protesting about something that you want to change and protesting to power holders. It's not just awareness raising, but it's doing it in this gentle way, which isn't passive or weak. It's about being you know, considered and strategic, leading yourself with, uh, you know, to serve the cause rather than to serve your own ego and how to do it in that humble way. So everything I do is how to bring gentle protest and sometimes craft into activism where it's helpful and where I can be of best use, which is making the kits, doing the projects, doing the events. Um, so it is that mix of being organic and seeing where there's need and also, um, yeah, where I think there's gaps to fill that others can't fill, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Uh, what an incredible journey, Sarah. You've it been still on... is. It still keeps me on my toes. <laughs> so we understand that you don't need to be a pro to be a craftivist. No, you can before. start from scratch and uh, it, it's going to be okay. You don't have to be skilled already to no, be a craftivist. And, and because I learned to craft from YouTube and from books, so all of my projects are really accessible. But if you are amazing at craft, you can embellish it with more mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. But I always challenge craftivists to say, like, your object, whether it's a gift for a power holder or whether it's street art or whether it's something for you to keep, focus on how it's there to serve the cause. And we have craft of thought questions for you to think through while you're crafting. So you're not just watching Love Island while you're crafting <laughs> way. Like, it, the process is just as important as the product. And actually, when you're giving gifts to power holders like politicians or CEOs or whoever it is, if it's so perfect and looks like a piece of art, it, there might be a risk that they actually think your motive is your love of craft mm. and not the vulnerability of making something that might not be perfect, but you've spent hours on as a tool, as a catalyst for change to give to a power holder. So, yeah, I sort of always plant those seeds in people of, you know, it's not just about it being perfect or being super elaborate. We've got to think about the amount of resources we use, which I know you guys think about so importantly about the environment and landfills and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. It's it's always yeah, threading that gentleness and compassion through everything you do, whether it's for the planet or power holders and for yourself as well. That is that sounds great, actually. And what's the most unusual tool that you've used to change a policy or a law and why do you think it worked? Well, all of my projects are really different. So I don't actually, you know, over 11 years I've been doing this and I've only really got 15 projects. I'm doing a handbook at the moment with all of our projects and there's some that, that tweak for different contexts. But I don't create lots of new projects for the sake of it. It's always about quality, not quantity, and it's about strategy. Um, and they're all completely different. So You know, to support fashion revolution, we have mini fashion statements, which are paper little scrolls, which is more about reaching the fashion media who don't normally cover the unethical side of fashion, but in a way that inspires and empowers their their sector and their um, their fashion lovers. And that's a great way that we got on the homepage of BBC News website and we got it into lots of really influential fashion blogs and websites that the sec people in the sector read. Um, but the one that I, I like the most personally is our hanky project. So I love how you can use handkerchiefs 
to literally change a policy. So I used handkerchiefs um, to encourage Marks and Spencers, who are one of the biggest retailers in the UK, and they're global now as well, to encourage them to pay the living wage to 50,000 staff who were currently, at the time, were on the minimum wage. Um, and instead of getting people to just make lots of stuff and dump them you know, on their front door, it was quite countercultural and quite counterintuitive because we knew that the CEO wasn't engaging with the the um, the option to become a living wage employer, a living wage employer. So I thought, who's above the CEO? It's the board members. There's 14 board members, including the CEO, and he has to listen to his board. It was a he at the time; it still is. He has to listen to his board. He's on the board. He's more likely to listen to them than activists who he might not think are their customers. So I engaged the board members with 14 craftivists from across the UK. I bought handkerchiefs from Marks and Spencers to show that we were customers, not boycotters. And I asked members of our global community in the UK, specifically because this was a UK campaign, I asked them, um, I found out who looked like and were part of Marks and Spencer's core customer base because I know that would influence them more and I picked people who would be really thoughtful and gentle and I gave them all a board member to Google look on LinkedIn everything about your board member from what are their passions are they a trustee of particular charities did they rise up the ranks through the shop floor or do they come from tech really try and understand them as a human being not just a board member and then on your handkerchief stitch a timeless quote from a positive change maker from history that you think that your board member will respect and resonate with not who you as a craftivist like but who do they like so my board member i googled a lot about and saw that she was quite shy quite softly spoken wore lots of purple had an interesting um background so i stitched a quote from rosa parks that i thought she would like but another board member got a quote from Miles Davis because he really liked music and he was a trustee of a music organization. Someone else, the, the chief finance officer, got lots of flowers on her handkerchief talking about how they the company could flourish. Um, and it was a quote from Anita Roddick. So real mix. And we boxed them up with little ribbon on them so no one, each other couldn't see what was on their handkerchief. And we wrote handwritten letters to go alongside them that were really robust in our argument to say, we as customers, you know, we love M&S. We grew up on, on your company. You know, our parents and grandparents will sometimes buy from you. We love your staff. So therefore, we're quite sad that you don't pay the living wage because not only does it make sense in terms of um, in terms of business sense, in terms of staff retention, efficiency, reputation for the company, it also makes sense for the dignity as well of your lovely staff and for burnout and all of that. So we had all the arguments to say that it's realistic that you can pay the living wage or the companies your size have done it, but you can also pioneer it. And we believe in you to be a lovely company that can deliver this. It wasn't just do this now and it wasn't an unrealistic ask. And we hand we bought a share each and we hand delivered them at the AGM where the board are. And we asked to meet them at the side of the stage to discuss the living wage, which for three years they'd ignored talking to the living wage 
wage foundation about and we handed them these boxes it wasn't a big display saying look at us and our handkerchiefs it was very intimate it was very humble and it was quite intriguing and we got our meeting about the living wage and within 10 months we had lots of boring meetings with them that didn't involve (laughs) but we also made them christmas cards saying all we want for christmas is the living wage and valentine's day cards saying please show your love to your amazing staff and pay the living wage and just before the next AGM, they announced they were paying the living wage to 50,000 staff. So they all got a pay increase. And we went back to the AGM to say well done to them, but also to ask them to become accredited, which is more difficult. And they always want to shy away from. And the chair of the board took me aside and said it was the most power. He didn't have to take me aside at all. And a lot of the board came to us to thank us for our handkerchiefs and to say how moved they were by them. And he said it was the most powerful campaign they'd experienced because it was so quiet and humble and it was bespoke to them. We took hours to make it personal. We had a robust argument. So every time they met, they would say to each other, what was on your handkerchief? Oh, where's <laughs> your curious. So, and then they'd say, well, maybe we should look into this because they've got, you know, quite a good argument about it. And we kept nudging them. So, you know, it's not making one handkerchief, you know, for listeners here and this, it's not just make a hanky and everything will be fixed, but it is an amazing catalyst for conversation. You know, it was a nice pun of don't blow it use your power for good we really believe in you as an individual and a company and we want to encourage you to do the best for your company and for your staff but it was done in this very humble way and everything from the colors we used that weren't too aggressive to the fonts so they weren't too shouty not capital letters and exclamation marks everything was thought out the size the intimacy you know the neuroscience the psychology Um, You know, all of that threaded through how these handkerchiefs could be a real catalyst for genuine change and not just talk at people or shout at them. My answers are so long. (laughs) (laughs) We want to know all the details. They're amazing. It's so great that, you know, you got so many uh, amazing stories. We heard a few. We read the book, so we know a bit of uh, uh, your successful campaign. So it's great to hear uh, uh firsthand how it went and all these little uh, behind the scenes that uh, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, just, <laughs> we don't know i always say we've got a little animated video on our website that's fun four minutes long that i made last year during lockdown um and it says on one of it you know it might all look very beautiful and simple from you know the side of the craft object but as soon as you turn your craft over you see all the the knots and the mess and you know, <laughs> how much goes into a campaign and I think it's really important that you know I'm not going to say it's really easy to do and you'll definitely have an impact sometimes you'll do the most perfect campaign and it won't work because of external forces or you know because of who you're targeting you're never going to quite know but it is important to you know try your hardest without being paralyzed by perfection but you know having a go and I think sometimes we underestimate the power of empathy and kindness and yeah. um, because the word is often very loud uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's great and it's empowering to hear uh, these type of stories. And for introvert people like us, knowing that there are other ways to take actions means that we can stand for what we believe in without feeling socially anxious, which is yeah. quite important as well for us. And what are the lessons that you have learned during all these years of campaigning? 
Oh, so many. I mean, I read so much. I'm a bit of a bookworm. So I always read a chapter of a nonfiction book over breakfast. Um, so I get through quite a lot. So I'm always reading about neuroscience, psychology, uh, the senses, so how the senses affect us. So in all of my workshops, I have instrumental music that's not distracting, but helps you focus and calms you down if you're anxious or angry. I have um, lavender scent from Lush that has a bit of cinnamon and vanilla in so you don't fall asleep, <laughs> but you don't, you don't, you know, lead by anger or sadness. It calms you down to think more um, clearly and more in, emotionally intelligently. Um, we have, I put grapes on the tables for people to share. So if you're around a table with people you don't know, it just feels more communal because you're sharing food and you're sharing scissors. Even our tablecloths have got flowers and um, greenery on because we know that calms people's minds. So yeah, I think I think through so much stuff and I'm always learning, you know, there's always more we're learning. Um, which I love, but also I just think the world changes so fast. You know, when I started doing craftivism in 2008, Instagram and Pinterest didn't exist. I think Twitter had just started. It was very much the world of blogging, not vlogging. Um, so we were always, you know, I've always got to think about how the context is different now and think about what works offline and online, what works for some people where there is a digital divide, you know, but I think, um, as much as I'm always learning and things are changing, I'm still always rooted in the same ethics of treat people how you want to be treated. Activism is not simple. The simpler it is, the less it's going to work. You know, being binary in our thinking is not helpful because there's always nuance involved. There's always different context involved. Um, I think because my mum's a politician and she's trying her hardest, but in a, in a messy system and democracy is not perfect I'm always aware of how you know sometimes you might have people really trying their hardest but they have systems and structures that mean that they they are limited on what they could do and also I read a lot about how to engage with people who you disagree with so you know recently I was learning more about how most people think they're on the right side of history people do not think they're on the wrong side or there is that ignorance is bliss or the banality of evil, but most people do see themselves as, a, as the good person. Um, so that's really important to always bear in mind as people aren't normally purposefully trying to be harmful to others or the planet. So what is their thinking? What is their mindset? And it's not that we're always 100% right and they're 100% wrong. There might be a mix in the middle. And I find that fascinating to figure out what people's motives are why people do harm in the world how they justify it how I am not always right and I can be just as much as part of the problem and not perfect as well um so yeah everything I do is you, you're always kept on your toes and always lots of questions and you know my man man template manifesto helps as a bit of a checklist yeah that's uh, actually one of our points as well because we really love it we love uh, all the points on it because uh, it gives so much food for thoughts and uh, we think that every point helps having uh, meaningful conversations and uh, lead to actions that can bring about uh, positive change we were particularly interested in the concept of humility that you mentioned a little bit and provoked on preach 
they say work with people and never against them and always keep an open mind and also never shout and always encourage. And how do you think we can apply these points to our daily life? Because I think that's the biggest challenge as well, even outside the campaign, to yeah. be able to do it on a daily basis with your I don't know, colleagues or you know, family. <laughs> yeah, and it is hard. I mean, being gentle is much harder than being aggressive and angry. I don't think I use the word never, or if I did, I wouldn't now, because the context is always different. So in the book, I say, you know, we should be angry, we should be sad about injustice in the world, but we need to channel that into stuff that's effective and proactive, not reactive. Um, sometimes the best thing to do is to shout at someone, but I think that's often like the worst case scenario. So if you think about, you know, I love my brother, but sometimes I know in certain times, that the only way to stop him doing something is to go, hang on a minute, and then do something. But most of the time, especially with power holders and people we don't know as family or friends, even with family and friends, normally it's not the most helpful to start shouting because our physiological in human instinct is very animal instinct-like. We, As soon as we feel judged or screamed and shouted at, we physically go into freeze flight uh, or fly off mode so we close off so even if we do agree with people or we want to listen we go into that fear mode where we just are our thinking brain switches off and we go into survival so it's just not strategic <laughs> to scream and shout at people and it's much and humility I think I think it's changing now you know even what I love this week you know with Southgate and with you know England winning <laughs> for once um it's really interesting hearing the media talk about his quietness and his um I don't think they use the word humility but this quiet mild mannered managed manager is actually having more success than most England managers over however long 55 years so I think there's a change where people don't see humility as weak or gentleness as weak or quietness as weak as much. But our default is still, we see an injustice, we should be screaming and shouting. And I always want to challenge that and say, sometimes we do. So I don't say craftivism should replace other forms of activism. I do think we should still go on marches. If the marches have a clear strategy, are not divisive, are realistic, are holding the right people account, and we're not and we're focused on policy not personality so sometimes we can slip into marches where you know donald trump isn't president anymore but when he was it was very easy to focus on his personality or his lack of his hairstyle or his weight you know stuff that one is unkind is not helpful because anyone that's against you can discredit you easily to say, well, you're petty, this is immature, this is unkind. And it's not about policies, it's about his personality, which we need to get away from. So I think humility in yourself of, you can't save the world on your own because you'll burn out and that's very arrogant. And no one, especially people you disagree with, will pick up on that arrogance and use it against you to say, what do you know? Or they'll feel judged by it. But also humility of, I'm not a politician, I'm an activist in my role, so I can feed in stuff to politicians, but at the end of the day, I can't vote in parliaments like they do. So I need to be respectful and I need to say to them, what would you need to vote in this particular way? And tell me why you're not gonna vote in that way because you might change my mind and I need to understand it more. 
and if and sometimes you know when I worked for the UK Department for International Development it was fascinating because the minister at the time Douglas Alexander would say we desperately need the public to say publicly and we need a diverse public not just your typical loud lefty activists we need to see that the general public want us to do more on climate change or global poverty or whatever it is because that's the only way we can justify voting in a certain way to certain politicians and and the opposition um so it's much more messy and complex than people think and i think the humility of saying where can i be of use without burning out what are my skills that i can bring when is it best to stand alongside someone when is it best to stand um behind someone so when is it best to speak out on behalf of someone who's directly oppressed because they've got enough to deal with and they they might be um, unsafe to speak out? And when is it time to stand behind those directly affected and be in solidarity with them and support them quietly behind or support power holders without anyone knowing um, that you've you might have made a difference in how they've changed things? I think it's it helps our mental health and our physical health. And it's, you know, the end of the day, long-term change comes from changing hearts and minds as well and behaviours and cultures. And that takes a while and no one likes to be told what to do. (laughs) True. The more you can sort of plant seeds that they might even think that they've come up with, the better. You know, the more a power holder says, you know, I've had it a few times actually where I've said something in a meeting or a presentation or a campaign or a handwritten letter and a few weeks later, they'll say to me or to, you know, someone or a context, I had this great idea to do this. I think that even if I've mentioned it in the correspondence, that's the best result because the more someone takes ownership of it and sees it as their idea, the more likely they're going to keep delivering on it and persist with it than if they feel pressured by you to do it. But obviously different contexts are different. So when there's a war when there's emergency relief needed every context is different and sometimes you do need to push and you do need to do urgent loud actions for media or to stop people in their tracks i think you need all of it but you can always do it whilst thinking to treat people how you want to be treated and is this the most effective or is this more divisive or is this unkind because if things are unkind you're actually fueling more separation more violent thinking and often violence publicly so it's yeah there's no there's no right answer it's always context um but i think you can still thread love through everything without that sounding too cheesy (laughs) (laughs) and uh, your latest campaign is uh, for crafters worried about global warming it has a very curious name that we cannot pronounce would you like to talk about it (laughs) yeah it's called canary craftivists Mm -hmm. so um COP26, which is the UN Climate Change Conference, um, that happens every year around the world with world leaders, was supposed to be last year, but obviously with the pandemic, it's been delayed till this year. And the UK government is hosting it. So every year it's in a different um, country. One of the famous ones was in Copenhagen, um, which was quite a disaster. And then we had the Paris Agreement um, a couple of years ago that's really helped put things on the right track with Christina Figueres, who is an amazing chair from Costa Rica. 
This year it's in the UK. Um, I'm UK based, even though the Crafters Collective is global. So last year when it was deferred until this year, I was thinking, as we all should, where can we be of best use? Climate change is more of an urgent issue than ever before. We can't ignore it. And where can, you know, the Crafters Collective is small. I run it as a one woman band and I have patrons who keep me surviving, which I couldn't do this without them. If anyone wants to become a patron, that would be brilliant. So I had to think, where can I be of most use um, without burning out and without copying or um, clashing with what other charities and climate groups are doing? And my thought process was this government is a conservative government. We really need them to see that climate change is not a party political issue. It's not just loud lefties involved who would never vote for them. This is also their constituents. This is their voters. And this is much more diverse than they think. So in my little way, I spoke to lots of different campaign groups. I do a lot of work with the Climate Coalition. So I got them to check it. And I thought, where can the craftivism be of most use? And it's in the summit. So where we are now, um, there's a lot going on in in the autumn onwards so i'm not competing with that but this summer it's a really powerful way that people who enjoy craft who don't see themselves as political who've never been part of activism before or are not part of climate action that's the audience we're targeting to get involved not people who are already part of different groups which again sounds a bit counter intuitive for a lot of activists who say this is for everyone i'm like nope this is just <laughs> for people who can craft and are not part and not already um, involved in climate action and we're getting them to meet as a small group between two and 12 people in yellow to look like canaries so you can make a handmade cape that's upcycled or you can just wear yellow outfits and we want you to meet um, silently in a little group somewhere in your local area that's recognizable as a loved landmark and take a photo of you crafting a handmade canary bed each. So it could be knitted, crocheted, felted. We've got lots of free patterns or you could create your own. And we need an image of you and your small flock, no banners or anything, just very curious as a canary with your um, local, local landmarks nearby. So we've got one in Cardiff by the castle. We've got ones in Norwich. We've just had one in Hampstead Heath overlooking London. Loads of different areas across the UK to say that we are worried about climate change um, and we're not your typical activists. We're quiet, we're introverted. The canary metaphor is really good because in the UK we had canaries were taken as colleagues by coal miners down the coal mines because canaries feel um, toxic air much quicker than humans. So they would get quite sleepy and quiet and then there was risk of them dying. But the coal miners loved them so much because they'd be super chirpy and like their little friends that as soon as they stopped chirping to them, they wanted to take them straight out of the coal mine and resuscitate them so that they didn't die. And that automatically helped the coal miners as well. They're very small and delicate. They're yellow, so hopeful yellow. They look for clean healthy air and we in the future want to look for clean healthy air in this world and help create it so we felt like it was a really good metaphor not we're not doing a die-in with dead canaries everywhere we're making these beautiful small canaries to give to our mps to say this is a warning sign that we don't want our worlds to get worse and it's also an encouragement for you to be part of creating a, a cleaner greener land constituent city world 
and get them to keep it and put it on their desk. And we have handwritten letters that we go alongside them. So we're gonna meet in a flock, take a photo for the local media because we know local politicians look at the local media, newspapers, even if you don't. There isn't much climate activism happening this summer and local media always looking for um, stories to tell over the summer. So that makes more sense. They're competing with other climate action in the autumn. And then we're getting people to send their canary in the first week in September when MPs are back from recess and back in their work mode. Um, so we all send it at the same time. So very humble, very um, personal, very hopeful. And then people can use the project to carry on in their flocks and have more and do it in different places. You can do it um, next year on different campaigns that I'm, I'm talking about at the moment with different charities. Um, but it's one small action of meeting in a flock in yellow, making your canary for your MP, which might not sound like a lot, but hopefully it's enough that people don't burn out and they can do it over the summer, especially after the pandemic when people are nervous of meeting in big groups or doing, um, and also in the context we're in now where politicians don't want loud protests. They're quiet, they're picnics for us people. They're really small, um, just up to 12 people. So it ticks lots of boxes and we have craft of thought questions for people to think through while they're making their little canary. And we've already got it. Um, it's gonna be covered in six craft magazines this summer with free patterns. So putting the climate action into spaces you don't expect it. I'm talking to a few national newspapers and magazines to cover it, who again, might not normally cover climate activism. So more center or right-leaning political newspapers or apolitical magazines who might be nervous to cover Extinction Rebellion or other groups that are doing really good, valid actions, but um, might not be able to get into those bits of media. So it is always looking at where are those gaps where our craftivist collective and gentle protest could fill where other climate activists aren't filling to help build the green movement to be even more diverse and to get the message out there um, that we need our politicians to be faster and bolder in their climate action locally, nationally and internationally. That's the plan. The more you tell us about all these details, the more I realize why your campaigns are successful. There's so much uh, oh. strategy. Yeah, exactly. Every detail, every metaphor, everything is so well uh, thought. And it has to be. And they're not always successful. You know, we've made some stuff for MPs where the MPs have gone, nope, don't care. Mm. But that's still useful to know. You know, as long as you try your hardest, you're at the end of the day we're talking about human beings who have control over themselves so sometimes it works better than you think sometimes it doesn't um but i always say to people you know when they say oh there's so much to think through i'm like yeah that's why i've done all the hard work for you you know i'm an activist geek that's why i wrote the book that's why we have our kits some of them you can use for your own issue um you know the more practice you do the more it'll help you if you do want to create your own campaign um, but it is that difficult thing that, you know, activism is hard. It's, it is about keeping your ego in check. It is about serving the cause. It is about thinking through all that strategy stuff. Um, so it's not easy, but I think it's much more fulfilling than fun. You know, when you do it for the right reasons and you have thought through it, you're much more proud of what you've done. You're more, much more likely to have real genuine impact than if you try and do something super quick and easy then often it doesn't work and then you think well 
activism doesn't work. And also you, with craftivism, you're using physical resources that if you do something quick and easy and you do lots of it, it might end up in a landfill and you might be using resources that don't need to be used. So we've got to think through all of that stuff without paralysis of analysis. It's a, it's a balance. I like all the, the psychology behind it because also must be uh, sometimes for some people uh, hard uh, when something goes wrong and you feel a bit uh, yeah. overwhelmed. And... Yeah, and it's also, you know, with this campaign, it's not as clear cut as getting a company to pay the living wage. Some of ours are more about our mini fashion scrolls are anonymous. You don't know the impact it has on the people who find them. We shop drop them in little pockets of clothes for people to find. But we do know that it got into media where you don't expect it and it's added to the conversation. So sometimes it's more about shifting a culture and being part of change in mindsets and behaviors, which is harder to measure. Sometimes it is changing a law. So one of our campaigns changed the law in Spain to protect migrating birds. So it's really, really different. But I think when you think through those 10 points and you think through your strategy, then you go, okay, I'm doing as much as I can without burning out, without using resources I don't need to use. And then I just have to let go and see it as seeds to plant. Um, and that's difficult because we all want to control. What yeah, happens. we want something visible. Okay, I did this and this is the result. Yeah, it's done. this is the result. And it's not that easy. Yeah. I mean, the MS campaign is easy to say, but that is a quite a unique, clear, linear process it was 10 months start to end mm -hmm. um, and I've had film companies saying can we film a documentary on you doing something like that and I say well it's really rare for that to happen and also I know power holders will not want to be filmed saying you helped change my mind or our mm -hmm. policy so it's it's messy and sometimes you'll be told from people you changed my mind and my habits and you haven't they just want to please you Or what happens more often is politicians, especially, and, and company leaders will tell you that you haven't made any, any impact on them because they don't want to encourage you to do more campaigns. <laughs> They're so, scared. But, but you might have actually really had a niggle in their heart or in their mind and you might have had an impact. So I think, yeah, it's like anything, you know, craft is about honing your craft in whatever it is, whether it's making a beautiful dress that doesn't fall apart and that's sustainable and it's cut well and fits well or whether it's craftivism you know I always say it's a bit craftivism is a bit like a wobbly you know a bit like a chair you can have a really wobbly unethical chair made in sweatshops that will last for a day and then fall apart or be uncomfortable or you can have a really ethical beautiful beautiful one that lasts for hundreds of years both of them are chairs but I know which one I want to sit in And I think that's, you know, a challenge to craftivists of, yes, your craftivism could be stitching, make tea, not war. But what's the strategy? What's the impact? Who are you trying to reach? Is it clear? Are they going to misunderstand it? Is it preaching rather than provoking thought? All of that stuff. Like, we, you know, we should think through that strategy if we genuinely want to make a positive difference in the world. If people are interested in knowing more about craftivism and joining the Craftivist Collective, where would you recommend them to start from? I would say go on craftivist-collective.com and you'll see all of our kits and tools and free courses and free resources. There's a real mix. 
Um, I love Instagram. So that's a good place for people who are on Instagram. And we have a Facebook page and group and a Twitter as well. But I'd go to the website as the main thing to start with. But what would you say? I mean, you've read the book and got the manifesto. Where, where would you start? I will start with, uh, well, the, the Instagram page is amazing because I love all the pictures. They, I mean, I can see all the details in uh, everything you do that amazing. But also the website because you can find yeah. all the resources and... Uh, uh, when well, I think once you read the manifesto, you understand yeah. what it is about, and then you can move on and say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna see what I can do, what campaign I can join. I think you're right. Start with the manifesto, mm-hmm. and it's free to download on the website, or you can get a letterpress printed version. And we've got it in ten languages at the moment, and trying to always add more, uh, add it more in more languages. So yeah, let's start with the manifesto. <laughs> we like that. <laughs> And what are your favorite resources that inspire your activism? Um, Well, I'm surrounded by so many books that I've written notes all over. So I love Brené Brown, you know, all of her books about the power of vulnerability and um, ethical leadership. I, my favorite activist in the world is Martin Luther King Jr. So I regularly read his book of sermons and speeches because they are just incredible. And he refers a lot to philosophers, different religious leaders, emotional intelligence. I'm always thinking, what would Martin Luther King Jr. do? <laughs> so, yeah, and then other change makers throughout history. Eleanor Roosevelt's a big inspiration for me of how she used her context and contexts and as an introvert as well, what she did and as a woman. Um, and, yeah, I'm just... Behavioural psychology is probably, like, my go-to for everything is forget about how this makes me feel or what I want to say how does the brain work and how would their brain work receiving my information am I going to have a tantrum are they going to engage with that or do I need to use more non-violent communication so not use the word we demand you do this or you should do this they're violent language words it's more what about this more open questions um yeah does that answer your that, question? Yeah, that's a lot. So we're going to take notes. That's too and, much. <laughs> we're going to head to the library now so, <laughs> to check uh, all of them. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, being here and oh, uh, for coming on our podcast. Well, I hope it was helpful. And I always feel like there's so much more to say mm-hmm. and I've missed out lots, but hopefully it intrigues listeners enough to find out more and check out the manifesto. Yeah. That's all we need. Yeah, people intrigued and then everybody can start their own journey. I guess yeah. that's uh, the, the, easiest, the easiest way. So it's been a pleasure to have you with us today uh, to remind us that uh, we can all be agents of change by respecting who we are and by being positive and kind. For all of you listening, you can all follow the Craftivist Collective and get creative with one of their kids. Uh, Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed what you've listened to, you can subscribe to our channel or follow us on social media to know when the next episode is out.